New Writing New North. Writing New, North. Writing, New North. writing North. You're listening to a podcast New by New Writing North. You're listening to two former recipients of the Northern Writers Awards, Laura Stephen and Yvonne Battlefelton, in conversation with our Senior Programme Manager for Writing, Awards and Libraries, Will Mackey. There's still time to submit as the 2019 Northern Writers Awards are open for submission until midnight on the 7th of February. For more information and to enter, please visit northernwritersawards.com. Hello, my name is Will Mackey. I'm Senior Programme Manager for Writing Awards and Libraries at New Writing North. The Northern Writers Awards are run by New Writing North and they are our flagship writer development programme. The awards have been running since 2000 and have expanded a lot in the last few years. Our awards are supported by Northumbria University, Arts Council England and Channel 4. And additionally, we're grateful to a huge variety of industry, literature and educational partners across the various strands of our awards programme. We're very proud of the list of previous winners we've supported through the awards, which includes the novelist Ben Myers, the short story writer Karis Davis, poets like Phoebe Power, who recently won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection, and Andrew McMillan, who won the Guardian First Book Prize for his incredible collection Physical. Also children's writers such as Chloe Dakin and Mark Illis, and scriptwriters like Alex Clark, J. Shri Patel, and Sharma Woolfall, whose work has been commissioned for television broadcast. Today we're going to be hearing from two of our previous winners, Yvonne Battlefelton, who's based in Lancaster, where she's the co-director of the Northwest Literary Salon, who won one of our fiction awards in 2017 for her novel in progress, Remembered. He slows, and even from the back of his head, I know he's grinning. He zags sharply. You're running the wrong way. I can't get the words out fast enough. But then I see. He isn't running the wrong way at all. The women must have heard the commotion. Armed with broomsticks, they take to the porch in synchronized annoyance. They stand guard. Around back, the men have already stopped talking about the war, escape, and freedom. They're out front, gruff voices whispering. Run. Subsequently, Remembered secured a publishing deal with Dialogue Books and is due imminently. It's published in February and has a really beautiful cover, which I was looking at earlier. We're also going to be hearing from the young adult writer Laura Stephen, who's based in North East England. Laura won her award in 2018. Laura's brilliant debut novel, The Exact Opposite of OK, also appeared in 2018, so it was a really busy year for her. Honestly. I swear I'm the only person in the universe who realises how pointless life is. People act like mere existence is some beautiful gift, completely overlooking the fact that said existence is nothing but the result of a freak accident that occurred a cool 13.7 billion years ago. Not to rain on the parade or anything, but we're all doomed to a limited number of sun orbits before we finally kick the bucket and end up in the same infinite hell as Donald Trump and Adolf Hitler. Perhaps I'm overthinking it, but what we do between now and then barely seems worth getting out of bed for. Maybe I'm being melodramatic. I just really hate getting out of bed. She was given her Northern Writers Awards for a different project, however, an in-development novel called Creatia, a futuristic YA project. But first, a bit more about the Northern Writers Awards, which are open for applications until 7th of February 2019. In total, there are currently 15 award strands. The awards support writers in multiple ways. We offer bursaries to support writers to complete their work, we provide mentoring and manuscript feedback, and we broker relationships with the publishing and broadcast industries. Our awards are unusual in that we support work in progress ahead of publication. For some awards, we ask for a sample of work, while others, we require a finished draft of a manuscript. As the name suggests, the awards are open to northern-based writers, which encompasses the entirety of northern England as far north as Berwick and Carlisle and down to Liverpool and Manchester and across the whole of Yorkshire and the North East. We have awards for TV, for fiction, for poetry and for short fiction. Most of our awards are open to writers over the age of 18, while we have two award strands for younger writers between 12 and 18 years old. A couple of our exciting new awards for 2019 include the Hachette Children's Novel Award for children's writers. This is supported by the leading publisher Hachette and it will award the winner £5,000 and an offer of publication from Hachette. Another exciting new award is the Northbound Book Award, which is supported by UCLan and Saraband. And this will award the winner £5,000 and a guarantee of publication with the innovative Northwest-based independent publisher Saraband. All of our awards are free to enter. So anyone interested in applying for the awards should visit our website, Northern Writers Awards, for the full list of opportunities. 
Now it'd be great if we could hear from Yvonne and from Laura in turn, just to hear a little bit about your work and for you to tell us a little bit about your journeys as writers so far from the work that you did previous to winning your awards, how you kind of came to win your Northern Writers Awards, and then what's happened to you subsequently to that. And I think first probably we're going to hear from Yvonne. Sure. I started out writing short stories, and I also write creative nonfiction, and I also write for children, and now I'm starting to write some scripts. It's because I have a lot of stories in my head, and I like to see them come to life. I came to Lancaster. I was doing my creative writing PhD, and as part of my PhD, I was writing a novel. So it's my first novel, and through the PhD, it was writing and editing and revising and getting to know people and their stories and reading and writing and just doing a lot of really amazing things, I think, that really contributed to the novel that comes out February 7th in bookstores near you. But anyway, <laughs> it was the whole writing process, and I was nearing the end of my PhD, and a friend of mine recommended that I enter the Northern Writers Award. And to be honest, I wasn't going to do it because I kept thinking, well, am I a Northern writer? I was based in the north of England, but I, I am from North America. But um, I was <laughs> writing, <laughs> I was uh, based in the north during my PhD, and I think I was doing that. There were voices that were contributing to my writing and to the things that I was interested in. And so I contacted the organization, as you should do before you enter any contest and you have any questions. So I contacted, and they said that, yes, you're based in Lancaster. You are a Northern writer. So one of the reasons that I entered, though, was I was heading towards my Viva. And I thought, one, it was kind of two things. I either thought it would be really cool to go into that room and be like, well, my book's about to be published, <laughs> or um, which sounds really arrogant, and you don't want to walk in there and be like, you know. <laughs> but, um, but I just thought, like, how cool would it be to, to enter this award and, and just to kind of be looking forward because I was always curious about what I was going to do career-wise and how I was going to craft a career out of writing. And so I entered the awards, and I guess after, Laura, after, your, after we talk a little bit more, I'll talk about, like, my path from, to publishing, if you'd like, from the awards. But I entered because a friend of mine convinced me that it was a really good idea to do it. So I was a last-minute entry, um, before the deadline, of course. So I was a last-minute entry, but I was really, you know, glad that I did. Well, thanks, everyone. I think that touches on kind of one of the important things about the, the eligibility of the awards is that you have to be a writer based in the north of England, but this doesn't necessarily mean you have had to have been born here right. or that you've, you've lived here for a particularly long amount of time. You just have to be permanently based here at the time of application. Right. You uh, don't have to then, in your writing sample either, express any kind of sense of northernness in your writing no. either. The awards really, the spirit of it is about where that writer comes from, supporting writing from our region. And that can be interpreted in multiple ways, I think. And so, Laura, you were going to tell us a little bit about your kind of story too. Yeah, so conversely, I am extremely northern. Uh, I grew up in Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is pretty much as northern as you can get while still being in England. And then I came to Newcastle for university in 2009, um, and I studied journalism at Northumbria University. I then left and got a job at a glossy lifestyle magazine where I was writing a lot of nonfiction, but I kind of felt that my creative itch wasn't really being scratched in the way I wanted it to. So I started writing a book for the first time and somehow that book got me my agent and it ended up being published by HarperCollins who have a digital imprint. Um, so that came out in 2015 and that was actually under a pen name. And then I decided to go back to Northumbria University and do my master's in creative writing. And while I was there, I tried a lot of different mediums for the first time. I tried short stories, I tried scripts, which I really fell in love with. And I ended up entering a sitcom writing competition and got quite far in that. And then, I had a sudden panic in about 2016 where I didn't know what I wanted to do, whether it was scripts or novels. So I thought I'm going to have one more bash at novels. Mm. And I wrote the exact opposite of OK. And that ended up being published, like Will said, in 2018. In this time, I was working for Mislexia, which is a creative writing organization based in the Northeast, which supports women writers. So, yeah, it's been a kind of higgledy piggledy way for me to find what I really wanted to do but in that time from about 2012 to now I entered the Northern Writers Awards most years and didn't get anywhere um, and I was unsure whether I was going to enter in 2018 because I didn't have anything in the script arena that I'd been working on which is the the award I've been entering for a while and then I thought well the Northumbria University Alumni Award I could enter my um, dissertation project and that happened to be the one that won so yeah that projects now in development with the publisher so yeah. yeah okay brilliant did you enter before Yvonne or was this the first time you entered this was my first time entering okay brilliant so I mean I think it's two quite different different kind of um <laughs> stories extremes. then that have happened but I think if you have applied once 
or twice for the awards and it is really important to to keep applying isn't it and that was your experience yeah I didn't get anywhere in the first few years I entered it got to the point where I was shortlisted a couple of times and I thought okay I am getting closer and it is worth keeping going but I do think you know you're you're writing changes and develops so much in a five-year time span that even if you didn't necessarily have success in 2013 there's nothing stopping you from from winning an award in 2018 and it's actually it feels really satisfying to have that validation after five years of entering um but yeah definitely have no shame just keep going keep applying and try a range of different awards if you're not sure that so in my instance I was never getting anywhere with the script award and as soon as I switched to prose that's when the magic happens so yeah because there are these multiple categories obviously and then I think you've got to choose carefully which one you want to apply for because in most circumstances you can only apply for one award there are a couple of exceptions for that which are kind of listed on the website so you are like you say you entered for the NU Northumbria University Alumni Award, which is an, a special award for students from Northumbria University and alumni of Northumbria University, which is part of the way that we celebrate the contribution that Northumbria make to our awards program. Yvonne, you won your award in the kind of mainstream fiction category, didn't you? Right. I think. Do you I remember, did. if you can cast your mind back that far, what made you kind of choose that? category to, to enter for because there were a few you could have um there were but the project that I was most I think passionate about at that time was my novel I guess I could have done because I do write creative nonfiction, and so that was a possibility but it never entered my mind short stories again it just it didn't even come to my mind I was working on the novel and I think that was the one that would have made me most proud I was actively writing it so I had finished I think a couple of drafts for the PhD and then I had submitted and it was just like you know what yeah, I'll submit the novel and that mm-hmm. because I knew I had some editing to do before it went f- so that it went from PhD to publication. So that was the only one that I could have seen doing at that time. If I were to enter again, like now, I think I would try, I think, the script writing one just to kind of see there's some support that I think that I would need because I can visualize it. I don't know. I can see these characters in my head and I can hear them. But what I can't necessarily do is yet get them from my head to the page. So that might be something I tried in the future. Mm. A lot of these awards categories, they are there to kind of help people make those transitions from one form of writing to another. And mm-hmm. people who do that, it's often quite a difficult thing to do. If, you, you know, if you're used to writing in one area, if you're used to writing as a, as a poet or a novelist, but you are interested in writing for TV, then this kind of awards program could really, could really help you to make that step, actually. I think so, too. And one other interesting thing about the two of you is that, Yvonne, you were a, a debut writer, debut in terms of writing a full-length work. Right, Whereas, Laura, you, you were kind of interesting because you published pretty much at the same time as winning your award, but you'd also published pr- previously, hadn't you? Yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. My first two books came out under a pen name and sold absolutely terribly. So I decided to write under my real name and try again. So that book actually came out maybe two months before I got the email saying that I'd won the Northern Writers Award. So it was... It was quite a busy year, yeah. uh, and I'm working on some other stuff as well. And um, there's another book coming out this year as this well. This year, the it? sequel comes out in March, um, on March 7th, followed by some other stuff, which is redacted currently. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's been a really busy time. And thanks to the Northern Writers Awards, actually, at the awards ceremony, I got talking to some of the script people, and they've actually been, even though I didn't win one of the script awards, they've been really open to having dialogues with me about the projects I'm working on and stuff. So lots of good things have come out of winning the Northern Rise Awards. Yeah, sometimes the things are, you know, outside of the award, which often consists of a bursary payment and some other forms of support, there are these kind of unforeseen things exactly. that happen, you know, which can be because you end up sitting next to someone at the awards ceremony yeah. who, who kind of you connect with and ask you what else you're doing and you say, yeah, yeah. working on, on TV or some sort of other script and there's that kind of uh, connection to someone in the industry that can happen. Which is so valuable, I think, especially when you're in the North, you can feel quite cut off from those opportunities to make those connections I think it can feel especially with script that everything is in London and Manchester and if you live and work in Newcastle it can kind of feel like such a huge barrier to entry so it was just nice to suddenly have that opportunity to talk to the right people and make those connections and it wouldn't have happened without the award. Mm -hmm. Mine either. Winning the award for me was Elise was one of the judges that year. So for me, I always wanted an agent that I could have coffee with. Whether or not we physically did it, it just seemed like I don't know why in my head I was like I just wanted to one be on the same in the same country. I think while it would have been intuitive for me to look at the U.S. for agents, I didn't want that because I wasn't going to be there. So I knew I wanted my agent to be based in the U.K. Even though 
I thought I was going to be published in the U.S. first. But um, <laughs> her enthusiasm, like being able to meet her, so she came over, she introduced herself at the awards dinner, which was great because I didn't know a lot of people there. So her enthusiasm and then just being able to see that and hear that. She was passionate about the characters, about the story, and then not just about that, but about my writing. So it was like really personal and personable, and I absolutely loved it. And then from then I was like, oh, I absolutely want her to represent me. But it was great because that's what she came to ask me about. And oh, even wow. then I was like, well... Because that was only like 5,000 words, I think, for the sample. It was, it? yeah, that's right. And I was like, um, how about if I you know, just send you the rest of it? <laughs> and um, just because you know how you never know, she might have been like, wow, yeah. 5,000 words was awesome, but 5,001? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I started wanting her to be sure, and then I sent it to her, and then it was like right away, she was like, yes, and then she wanted to do it. So it was, it was just, I think, winning the award, that was wonderful. And the money, of course, was absolutely you know, great because it gave me time to to not worry about bills and to, to write and mom and do all the balancing on the things I needed to do. But then it also gave me that opportunity. I wouldn't have gotten that face-to-face with her and that enthusiasm and passion that was so important for me to make that decision. And I think that's important, really. Uh, we tend to set up our judging panel so that we have a mix of, of a writer alongside someone from within the industry, an agent or an editor. So in your year, it was Elise Dillsworth, mm-hmm. who was one of the judges who then went on really happily to become your agent, which is kind of the absolute ideal of what we want to happen really Mm. and I think that the way we look at it is that we have a region that is full of talent so many talented writers in the north of England and we have a network in place now where we we reach a lot of those talented writers in our in our region perhaps not everybody yet but the aspiration would be you know eventually to to be able to do that and because we have this talent pipeline that's really appealing to people like Elise and people within the industry to connect with us and to give them a route to finding new talented writers who who they might not have found otherwise but or might not have found quite so quickly so it's a two-way thing I think it's it's a really positive thing obviously for the winners but it's also a positive thing for the people that work as our partners and our judges who we are helping to broker that relationship between all of you with what I was also going to say as well just to kind of reiterate the point that that Laura you entered as a, as a published writer and the awards are open to both published and debut writers and there are some categories that are specifically at the moment for debut writers and some that are specifically for published writers and some that both published writers and debut writers can enter and again the spirit of that is that we want to be open to writers at all stages of their careers not necessarily just to support people at the early stage but to support people throughout because we recognize that there are challenges and hurdles to overcome at every stage of a writer's life. So your first two novels, they were yeah. um, under a pen name. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about a little, like that decision to write under a pen name a little bit? It's a funny one because at the time I had no real reasoning for it. It was really a gut instinct thing. And I think maybe deep down, so I was only 21 when I got my agent and it was the first book I'd ever written. And I think somewhere in the back of my head was this seed of a thing that I'd read in an interview somewhere. And it was talking about how if you write under a pen name and it doesn't work out, it's easier to reinvent yourself Mm. than be followed by a poor sales track record. And I think it felt like a safety net. It felt like a dry run really. And as it turned out, I needed the dry run. I needed it for my writing to improve. I needed it for me to figure out how to sell books. I needed it for a whole load of reasons. So it actually worked out for the best. But at the time, so many people said, why don't you use your real name? And I didn't know, I just knew that I wanted this persona to kind of try on the hat and if it didn't work out, that wasn't going to follow me anywhere. It was kind of a self-preservation thing, but it's worked out really well. And I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I had those dry runs. I think at the time it was really, it was really frustrating to me because I felt like, why isn't this sticking? Why aren't people buying my books? Looking back, they weren't good enough, <laughs> pure and simple, but it meant that I could have a complete fresh start as Laura Stephen and debut last year, kind of as a debut and yeah, it was nice to have that clean slate. Yeah. Have you ever done that, written under an assumed name? No, I haven't yet. I don't know why. It hasn't yet been something that I thought, oh, you know what, I'll do that. I think if I try a genre that I'm, um, mm, no, I don't think, uh, I don't think I'll, I'll do it yet. I think right now I'm just going to be Yvonne Battlefelt. And, and I don't know, maybe at one point I might throw the doctor in there just because, you know. Yeah. But, but yeah, um, other something than to that, celebrate. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think sometimes if people are making a big, shift in their career in some way like you were it's not a bad bad idea to to use a different name so if you started writing I'm not saying you're going to but romantic fiction or exactly so truth be told so I've always thought if I ever were to write like erotic fiction it would be under a pen name but not because of that but it was because I did my um master's at Johns Hopkins and I always thought it would be the sort of thing they would hunt you down for (laughs) so um yeah that would be the only way that I would like 
do a, lot a pen name. fiction authors use assumed names. Because yeah. um, they all went to Johns Hopkins. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I think like, so I'm doing that um, for one of the things I'm working on this year because it's, it's going to be for younger readers. And because of the nature of the exact opposite and the inappropriate jokes that I tell, it kind of saves any confusion. So if, say, the parent of one of those younger readers thinks, oh, there's another Laura Stephen book, I'll buy it and give it to my child. And then there's many swear words on the first page. It's, it's right. important, I think, especially when you're writing for young people to have different personas if you're gonna do that lane shift. Mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's interesting. I wanted to ask a little bit about, about that, actually. The idea of gatekeeping in publishing, because obviously this is really pertinent to YA books particularly, I think. But it's also perhaps something that, Yvonne, you might have come across too, in terms of the various people you have to go through, firstly to get your work out there, but yeah. then also to get the, your work to the reader that you want to read it. I think I've actually been really pleasantly surprised by how little I've come against that I think especially because I grew up in a town of 20,000 people and you just think the publishing industry is this thing that is not really an option for you and but now everything can be done by email so I have a literary agent based in New York it's funny that we have the the opposite (laughs) set who was extremely open to working with me even when I was a 21 year old writer with a very unpolished first draft she actually we did three revise and resubmits before she ended up signing me and she was so generous with her time even though she had these massive clients she was willing to take that risk on a young nobody who knew nothing really about the industry so put a lot of faith in you from an early yeah because the thing is the industry professionals that you view as gatekeepers their careers are built on writers and they need to find new talent in order to progress their own careers so I, I find it really everyone's so passionate in this industry and 95% of people are willing to help you if you reach out to them. I found it really difficult actually trying to do a bit more script writing because I feel like it is much more of a closed door. Really? Yeah, and it's made me really appreciate how publishing is so open. No matter who you are, you can send a query letter just like anyone else and it will be read because they need to find new clients. And similarly, editors need to acquire new titles. It's what keeps the industry going as writers. Mm. So I think there's a lot of mutual respect in publishing that's other industries might not necessarily have. So for my fiction for adults, I think that one has been, I've been really fortunate. Elise knew exactly who to send it with in Charmaine and it found a home with Dialogue Books. That's not the only publisher that she sent it to though. So in the UK, she sent it to some other publishers and I've gotten some really lovely rejections. Like just, I mean like, oh my goodness. And I keep them as well. So they're, they're just so uplifting really they are yeah You're they're sarcastic just, no no you're a better person than i am <laughs> <laughs> but no they tell me how lovely the writing is or the characters and i'm just like oh it's just so it always makes me feel really good i haven't had one where i'm like oh my gosh or i cry or anything like that so they're those rejections really have actually been encouraging they have um i've had some where they um Ultimately, it was rejected, but they would like to work with me, or this was lovely. And then some some things, it was that they didn't fall in love with the character. And I think for me, if someone tells you it's not right for them, then believe them. There's no sense in trying to convince them otherwise. Just like if someone says, I'm not right for you, they're not. So um, with the publishers who ultimately either didn't fall in love with the character, I needed someone to fall in love with her. And I think some of the barriers might have been in that, like her ending. So she's an emancipated slave. She's in her 70s and her son has been beaten by police. And so she's angry. And I think she's rightfully, justifiably angry and hurt. And I think for some readers, they might have expected her to end up maybe more hopeful or religious. It seems like for black women of a certain age, those are kind of your options. She wasn't doing that because I wanted to stick as true to her character as I possibly could. So I think for some people who felt like they couldn't fall in love with her, I think it's because like her reality was a bit different. Her reactions to her reality were, I think, human. And so it was fine for me that publishers were like, oh, no, we, we just can't maybe fall in love with her or see her in that same way. And that was fine because I think if they would have taken it on, they would have wanted to shape her in a way that it would have just lost that authenticity. But I was really fortunate with Charmaine. I think one thing I was surprised is maybe how many people need to fall in love with your project. So it's not just sending it to a publisher and then being like, I love it. And the editor's like, oh, I want to publish it. This is great. And it turns out, you know, there's meetings after and then everyone in the room has to love it. And then they have to send it to the marketing team and everyone there has to love it. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, so when you do get an acceptance and they're like, yeah, we want it. It's not just one person sitting, you know, in their bathrobe with a cup of coffee going, eh, I could do this today. (laughs) It's, you know, this really informed decision. Yeah, there's all these mountains to overcome aren't there I mean there's you know exactly you get over one and then there's a bigger one behind it right uh, until eventually 
you know, you finally get where you need to be. So that I think has been really, it's crucial to understand those relationships and even understand like the nature of rejection. It's no one saying um, you personally are, you know, a horrible person or a horrible writer. It's nothing about that. At the end of the day, it's do we believe in this and can we sell it? But even saying that, there's definitely a problem when it comes to diversity with young adults and also with children's publishing. At least in the UK, they're not publishing enough diverse stories. Mm. And that's really painful. Like if you go, for me, I want to be able to go into a store and be able to buy a children's book off the shelf and have my kids be, no, granted, they're older. So one day grandkids or whatever, be able to look in a book and say, wow, I see myself or I can imagine myself doing this or wow, a dragon. Yes, I could, you know, I can slay a dragon or whatever it is. Mm. And I think that's what's missing in publishing. So they may be, I think, definitely coming to terms with fiction for adults and creative nonfiction. And I think even publishing nonfiction for kids is doing some amazing things. But I think as far as when it comes to fiction for children, they definitely need to do that to diversify the shelf. There was a really terrible statistic that came out at the end of last year that Mm -hmm. 1% of protagonists in children's fiction was not white. Yep. 1% Mm -hmm. in all of the books that were published. And I think that's given everyone such a a shock because I think it's easy for editors or whoever in the publishing house that makes those decisions to think they're doing enough. And then something like that comes out and just categorically says we're not doing enough and we need to fix it. But, you know, that same um, report, I don't know if it was 1% the year before, but the last time they did it, it was equally dismal. Mm-hmm. Everyone got up in arms. But what they didn't do was publish more diverse writers. Or sometimes I'll read a story and it's not written by, like, so it's not authentic. It's written by someone who's not representative of that culture. And I don't know if they think it doesn't matter, but it really does, even if it comes down to language. So I guess part of that comes down to who gets the right to tell what story. Mm-hmm. But I know for me, it's really important. If I'm reading a story, I can sometimes tell when it's written by someone who has no idea of my background. And I can tell that when they start pulling out these like 1980s references, or they'll be like, they're doing something, <laughs> they're flipping through their um, their iPhone, and you're like, you're flipping through it. But they're doing that, and then they're like, oh, this is fresh. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I have not heard that like as an adult, at least since gosh, the 70s or right. 80s. So you can tell when there's this disconnect from like what people say and what people think that people say. It's a very lack of authenticity. Exactly. Exposes itself, yeah. How does that compare to the US then, that kind of imbalance in representation? I don't know what the numbers are, but I do know that when we were in the US, I never had a problem um, going to the library or going to a bookstore and finding a book off the shelf for my kids. Never had a problem. When I'm here, I can go through and I can be looking for like a really long time even different things like wrapping paper yeah right. I don't know, like i was looking at wrapping paper and we we do the thing where we have different gift wrap for each different person and so then we had the santa claus and so i'm in there shading every other one because i'm thinking gosh if i'm home and i have crayons and i have like markers but if i have to like home make diversity so that like not every every character on there is not white then if i can go through and be like okay you know every three or every fourth or every fifth one is going to be like a different um, ethnicity or do whatever if i can do that at home with a pen or a pencil you can't tell me that you know whoever's out there making wrapping paper can't do that no and visually that things that's so important it's an important way to address lack of representation isn't it through 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 covers right. um yeah. particularly through picture books for children I think really essential. But I think um, you're right with the characters. There's the days, I guess, when they would be the sidekick or the yeah. best friend or like the, the neighbor. But I think we need protagonists from diverse backgrounds. And do you think YA, Laura, is more progressive than other areas of writing? Because it is, in many respects, a more kind of adventurous area of writing. More people take more risks, I think, in YA than in, in other kinds of writing. I mean, I don't know that I'm necessarily the best person to answer that question because it would be really easy for me to say, yeah, we're doing great in YA, but... Because of the privileged situation that I was born into, I'm not the best judge of that. I do think there's so much focus in YA, especially on own voices at the moment, especially in the US. So if, for example, you're writing a Chinese-inspired fantasy, they want that to be, from a person who has that Chinese background, to lend authenticity, but also to make sure that the representation is yeah. is real and good. And I think there's also a push to, if you're writing outside of your lane, whether it's you know a side character or a main character, to hire sensitivity readers and to make sure that you're really not causing harm by writing that character. So I think, yeah, progress is being made. It's not, it's not really enough and it's not really quick enough. But YA, so many of the big breakout YA books this year have been so diverse. Like there's Children mm. of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi which has just spent like 42 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and it's genuinely amazing. And the cast is entirely black. And I think that's such a powerful thing. And that's tipped to be the new big franchise, the new big Harry Potter. And I think there are trailblazers like that who are like paving the way for 
publishers to be like, oh, books like that do sell. Let's acquire loads more. So hopefully in the next few years, we will see that shift. But it's not fast enough, really. Yeah, it's a shame in a way that, that, that you have to prove it to publishers, I think, mm-hmm. don't you? You have to prove that the market is out there. I think it's because they've been using that myth before. Mm-hmm. They would oh, it doesn't like, sell. Exactly. And it, one, it doesn't sell if you don't publish it. Yeah. And then, and also it doesn't sell if you create characters. And so after a while, if you keep excluding people from the stories, and you can't be surprised when they no longer buy the stories we're excluded from. So mm. there's no reason for me to go and say, okay, you know what, guys? None of you are represented in any of these books. And I can tell because I'm looking at the cover or I'm flipping through or whatever. None of you are there, but let's use our imaginations. No. If you're picturing yourself in there, I want it to be because there's characters that you relate to. The stories are relevant. There's something in it that you really want, but I don't want them to always like to read it and say, okay, you know what? Actually, I'm just going to include myself here because the writer has done a really good job of excluding me. If the writer has not included you, sometimes there's a reason. Sometimes they didn't think about it. But even then, I don't reward that. I don't say, well, you know what? we're not at all in this, and this is the 100th book I've been to that I see that we're not in it. But this one, we're just going to use our imagination, honey. Nope. It's not enough, is it? It's not enough. And it's not my job. And I think it's not my kid's job either to to go through and be like, oh, I'm going to picture myself in this. I think to picture yourself in it, there's got to be a hint. You have to know that you're welcome. And if you can look on the page and say, wow, I'm actually not welcome in this story, then it's not your job to picture yourself in it you can write a story and that's I think that's one reason that I want to write children's stories because if I'm waiting for a publishing to catch up Mm. to what I need on the shelf I don't have that sort of patience instead of that I can write the stories that I want to see and then I can say okay here you go come to my shelf and then you find it so in a sense writers you know writers need to feel empowered don't they to to kind of tell the stories that they want to tell and the voices that they want to tell them but there also needs to be people in positions of power, change-making positions who are, who are actually helping that to happen as well, you know, helping those, those books to find where they need to be. And you need to be positioning other people into those positions as well where they can affect some form of change, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And there are a lot of people on social media and in the media complaining about this push for diversity and saying, you know, it shouldn't be forced like this, it shouldn't be forced, but without that pressure... The people who are making the decisions aren't going to make the right decisions. They need to feel like the spotlight's on them and they need right. to be doing better. Yeah, It's it, funny, the people who don't want to push it are, I think, the same people who are benefiting from it not being diverse yeah. now. I think it's easy to be there to sit and say, well, you know what, actually, this is not a dire condition. Everything is fine as long as they're being represented. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, that's a problem right there. Even if I'm saying I need more diverse books on the shelf, that's for everyone. Yes. So it it's is. not saying, it's not cutting someone else's no. story out or not saying, well, actually, instead of publishing these six, I'm saying publish those six and these six. One of the great joys of fiction, particularly, is that you enter into the lives of, of people who are not necessarily yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can be broadly interpreted in, in so many ways. You know, it can be going into the past or into a different country or whatever. You know, there shouldn't really be limits, I suppose, on what is out there for people to read, I think. It's so important for empathy, I think, especially in children's fiction, for kids to be able to read from other perspectives that are different from their own. It really helps them become a more rounded, empathetic person. And they take that into their adult lives. And I think that's so powerful and so important. And yet when you are just presenting this one worldview time and time and time and time again on the bookshelf that doesn't happen yeah and I think especially if like me so I grew up in an extremely homogenous town and I didn't meet people from different walks of life very often I think if I'd been able to read about those people more readily it would have made a huge difference and there are so many tiny towns like that <laughs> in England especially in the north and yeah. they never read about anything other than their small hometown view it's true because you know writing can take you way way beyond yourself and help you to figure things out and understand the world new writing new writing writing you're listening to a podcast by new writing i was just going to ask you you both as well a little bit more about your relationships with the people who edit your work so both your agents and your editors as well and just to kind of explain a little bit more about the relationships you have with them and the kind of support that you've had I think that the way that both of you have spoken about your agents already, you have really positive, good things to say about them. I'd just be interested, I suppose, in in knowing where they kind of come into the process for you, when you feel your work is ready to share with your agent, and then what happens then, how they kind of have an impact on what you're doing 
both creatively and professionally. I've been with my agent for nearly five years now, which seems completely unbelievable to me. Not only is she an extremely editorial agent, so if I send her the messy first draft of something, she's not phased at all, and she's willing to roll up her sleeves and get stuck in and really guide the narrative in that way. She's also amazing at strategy talks, so if I'm feeling a bit like, okay, I've run out of contracted work, what are we gonna do next? Or if I'm just, you know, at the start of this year, I sent her an email like, okay, here are all the things I wanna write this year, what do you think? She's amazing for big picture thinking. And sometimes as the writer, it's easy to lose track of that because you're, you're so involved in one project that you're not looking at the next project and the one after that and your general progression. So for me, it's kind of like having a career coach as well as someone who, you know, sells your work and liaises with the publisher. And that's just completely, invaluable and I think agents fully earn their 15% if not more because I personally wouldn't have a career without my agent I probably wouldn't have been able to do that lane shift from writing as my pen name into children's into younger children's and she's guided me through all of that and then just the difficult issues you have with your publishers sometimes about contracts and about payments it's so nice to have someone in your corner that you can say actually can you can you just deal with that because i don't want to ruin my relationship with the editor and she'll that's what she's there for so yeah i have an extremely positive relationship with my agent and quite a nurturing relationship i think yeah. it's been isn't it yeah exactly i mean I, i'd like to think that professionally i've grown quite a lot in five years and also as a writer and she's been there kind of every step of the way even when you know she saw some raw talent in me that was completely unpolished she was willing mm. to kind of be like okay how do we take this to the next level and the next level and the next level so yeah she's fully nurtured my career it's a special thing isn't it yeah, yeah. and like you i love the the fact that i can go for a coffee with my agent she came across to the uk recently and we had a really nice lunch and i'm going out to visit her next month and it's nice to feel like they're kind of your friend as well as your business associate. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's such a great thing to have. I don't know if you feel the same. No, yeah. I do, I do. My first, I guess, editor for, so, although I think air quotes don't really work on the radio, do they? <laughs> so, um, but so my first, in a way, editor for my work though was Jen Ashworth. So she was my thesis supervisor. The, the question of how do you decide to send work with them or to you know that extra reader, it was, decided for me for the, yeah. during the PhD. So it was kind of like every two weeks you'll send something and it was either creative or critical. But I think that kind of, it was a really good relationship because it reminds you that you're sending a draft. I would send them kind of as I pictured them. So I would always have this image of my character in the doorway, like on fire. And I, so I'd be kind of like either writing towards that or from that. And it wasn't in chronological order even when I was writing it. So, um, and she's like, oh, I see you're playing with time. And I'm like, actually, (laughs) not exactly. It's just kind of like the way that I would see it, which actually wasn't the order of the novel. But that, I think, was really useful for me to have that that reader to say, well, um, maybe things that I I didn't see or characters I couldn't let go. There were some questions that maybe I would have answered or was curious about answering but didn't answer because it was like leaving some things for the reader to kind of figure out. And even some things that maybe were, as a reader, she wanted some answers. And I was like, no, because in real life, we actually don't get all the answers that we want. So um, there were some things where I, like my characters, when they um, become emancipated as they're set free, there are other characters that they really want to be in contact with because, you know, they're family. But there are some characters where I might know in my head what happened to them, but I wouldn't let the characters know because right. it was, and that's so the reader doesn't know either because actually in real life, not all slave families were reconnected and reunited. And while I really wanted to write these happy endings, it really would have been forced and it wouldn't have been organic. So I was like, nope, we don't always get what we want. But having her as a reader, was it was, it was awesome. And then after that, um, I was really fortunate because Elise was a former editor. So she would be able to look at things and things that I thought were, oh, this is so beautiful, and um, and you should see how this character does this, and then and like and granted the cal- the character was d- was drowning, but <laughs> it was quite eloquently done, and um <laughs> and she's like um actually you can you know probably cut here because she still you know would drown, and you're like oh yeah turns out, <laughs> so that was really useful for me to have that that editorial eye to say where um some things where yeah you know the language might be beautiful but I wasn't selling this beautifully flowered language I was trying to keep the reader engaged Mm. so I think for that that was wonderful and like your agent with the big picture I think Elise is really great with that because I have no patience so when I say like um, I want this 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 I write this 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 and so I'll have multiple projects where I'm doing them at the same time because it's kind of how I think and it keeps me out of trouble Elise will be able to say like oh we need to protect your writing time 
it's just more not like everything right now. Like all these competitions come out and I'm like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to do this. And she's like, hmm, <laughs> let's talk about it. And it's kind of like that slower voice with the, let's wait and see. And you're going, ah, yeah, you know, we, we could take a little time instead of just kind of like, yeah. throwing everything out there. I one. finally sent Susie an email like last week being like, actually, I want to be more strategic in what I say yes to rather than just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And she's like, oh, thank God, finally. Okay, <laughs> let's sit down and discuss this eventually five years later. But it is useful to have someone because I think as writers, we get really excited really quickly about all these different opportunities and different stories we can tell. Yeah. But you need that external voice to be like, okay, this is the one you should focus on. Yeah. And then we could look at that later yeah. instead of us overwhelming ourselves as we tend to do. Because it's hard to know, isn't it? You know, it's until impossible. you've been in it for mm-hmm. for years and years like your agents have been. For the writers coming through, you just it's difficult to know, you know, what, what should I do with this piece of work? What's right for it? Where should it go? And and also there's you know, there's that thing of being over enthusiastic. There's also the opposite of that of being kind of reticent as well about certain things. And sometimes you need that vote of confidence in your work to know that that's something that you should pursue and, and send, send out further. That voice of support and rationality is really important, I think, in that. Rationality, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's exactly what we lack, and that's what our agents <laughs> offer us. <laughs> and then also with your publishers then. So you've been through this phase with, with you, with Jen, actually initially as your PhD supervisor, and then, and then with Elise, and then onto your publisher. How's the experience been for the two of you with, once it's got to that stage? For me, it's been overwhelmingly positive I think in the UK especially I had I had three editors for my first book which was quite overwhelming but they were all just absolute geniuses really honest I have one editor and her editorial notes just blow my mind every single time and it's really upsetting because they always require a lot of work and I'm like I really want you to be wrong Unfortunately, Mm. you are right about everything all the time. So I will hit delete on 80,000 words and start again, (laughs) Um, which happened to me with the sequel. Really? That was awesome. Yeah. I wrote the full thing, the full 80,000 words, and my editor, you know, got back to me. She's like, this is great. It's really funny. I just think we need a completely different story. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Interesting. Um, She's like, can you you write it in the next month while you go on tour for the first book? I'm like, "Mm -hmm, that's fully a thing I can do. For the most part, though, it has been incredibly positive and I do feel much better about the book that's coming out in two months than I did originally okay again unfortunately she's right about everything looking back it was the right it was the right decision at the time I cried a lot a little bit <laughs> and daunting, ate a lot of yeah. ice cream and drank a lot of wine but now these things are great yeah so yeah I've had a really good experience with my publisher in the UK especially um when they first acquired the book they sent me this spreadsheet of all this praise from everyone at the publisher because like you say so many people have to be on board and that just has set the tone for this entire relationship and I've Mm. always felt like they've really championed me which is quite rare to find I think sometimes you can feel like a drop in the ocean in publishing but when you have an imprint that fully believes in you it's it really makes you bolder I think in your writing and it makes you bolder in things you say yes to so I've been so lucky and I want to ask you a little bit about Dialogue Yvonne which is a new imprint is yours the first or one of the first um, no, they they hit 2018 really strong. Okay. So they have, I can't tell you what number because I don't know um, how many books that they've come out with, but I know she's very selective I okay. think, with the, book, the yeah, books that sure. she does. But that's also because the whole team gets behind every book. So it's not just her saying yes, it's everyone saying yes and everyone really working on each book. She's had some really awesome books come out last year and some awesome ones coming out in 2019 as well. The editorial process with Jen and with Elise, they didn't have a lot of structural things to do, but there were things that we were talking about. I had a character who had uh, two sons, um, and because in my head she always did, but I never put them on paper. I put the one. The other one did not live, but he also didn't die. He just wasn't there. <laughs> it went through my PhD. It went through Elise, and it was when we were doing the, um, the editor dialogue, and she was saying, so about the son. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I was sitting there thinking, like, I have to invent this whole character. He doesn't even have a name, so I have to invent him, and then he needs, like, because um, I knew he was going to die. So he needed a life. He needed, you know, people he loved, and then he needed to die. And I'm like, oh, wait, actually, I could change two to one and sons to son and um <laughs> and it was like so it was really nice that having does sound someone. like the best way around that probably. you know it, <laughs> in retrospect yeah I'd, I'd say um i don't know why it wasn't my first thought though like how i could just easily like just change this word to this word but no it was just i need to invent a whole nother character 
their feedback, I think, has been really good. And even just consistency with words and how I might spell words. And they might be slang for my characters, but it's just that, you know, the things that are important so that it's consistent. And my reader, every time they get it, they'll see, oh, okay, this is this and this is that. So I think it's been really crucial, but a really positive experience yeah. as well. Have you found that copy editors are actual geniuses and lifesavers? Because, like, I would write something like, Danny blushed for the first time in his life and she'd be like actually Danny blushed on page 45 (laughs) (laughs) wow (laughs) how do you know that how can you possibly know that but okay I'll change it and they they get they catch things that you didn't even think to to do searches for and yeah they do it's amazing when you read a published book you don't think about all the different people it's gone through to get to that point but they just take out every single inconsistency yeah it's it's the collective effort isn't it that's gone into the book And I think sometimes what you really need is just someone externally who's very attentive and will read and pick up on things. You know, repetition is quite a, a common one, isn't it? That certain words or, or even just kind of rhythms in words and you know, names that don't rhyme exactly, but sort of seem a little bit similar, have the same number of letters in them or start with the same letter. Things that the author might not necessarily notice that the editor who's external will see and is trained to pick up on. I think it's that. It's also, um, I was really impressed with the editor fact checked. So I created a title for um, a pamphlet that I created for the novel. And it, it didn't exist anywhere except on the page where it's okay. you know, there. And they emailed to say that they had fact checked and couldn't find it anywhere. And I was thinking, wow, I'd have been really impressed if you had, because <laughs> like <laughs> that had been something. But I was just so impressed that they fact checked the name of this to see who the writer was and when it was written. <laughs> and I'm like, what'd you find? But... <laughs> So they, I think they, they are. That it's really it's just those little touches, though, that you... And I guess because maybe there was a chance that that title would have come up in something else or even something that I hadn't meant it for it to be associated with. So it was nice having someone to even think about, like, you know, has someone created this before? What was it doing then? It's that kind of uh, pedantic way of reading, isn't it? And the incredible attention to detail that you need to, to be able to do that job, I think. And I'm not about that life. Like, I'm broad strokes only. Right. As, soon, <laughs> as soon as you have to be detailed, I fall apart. I I can't do that attention to detail. So it's so nice having that safety net and being like, even if I'm terrible, it will not go out a published mess. It's going to be picked up. It'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just leading on from that then, that sort of discussion about agents and your editors. I'm also quite interested in other people who have an impact on your writing in some way that they've supported you or they've inspired you or something. So I think one of the things I'm quite interested in doing personally it's like reading dedications and acknowledgements in books and trying to kind of work out the stories behind those and I just wondered if either of you wanted to share some special individual that might have supported you with your work I have three kids so I can't point out just one person but yeah but, um, I think there's a lot of things that we take for granted so that a book doesn't actually just happen or at least my books don't happen just um, in a vacuum and so if I didn't have the support of my children um, even just things of understanding what I meant when I said I'm working from home because I noticed my kids get it if I say um, I'm working from home today they know that that still means I'm busy I'm still doing whatever whereas my friends will say oh you're just home and I'm like yeah I'm working from home and they're like yeah so um <laughs> as if I said I'm just you know I'm lounging around all day yeah. so having I think one my kids support it has been really well I mean plus I did drag them from the U.S. to here as well so <laughs> there, there was that so they're really supportive and then my thesis supervisor so having Jen I think that yeah. was not just in the writing but just even just kind of that um the stories that I wanted to tell my characters are incredibly vulnerable on the page. And even just having someone say um, or acknowledge that, yes, they need it to be this way or it's really useful or this is this really human touch to these characters. I think that was really useful. But then friends as well. So Naomi Kruger, whose book May came out and we did her launch just last year in 2018. But she, she was a really great reader and then also a friend who you could say like, oh, I got this rejection from something. And she'd be like, oh, that's great. Whereas a friend who doesn't write would be like, oh, my gosh are you going to stop writing? And you're like, <laughs> what? It's the New Yorker. No, I got a rejection from the New Yorker. You know, life is good. So I think for me, it was those sort of relationships, being able to have friends who are writers, but then also friends who are not writers. So I think I would also say, so Naomi Kruger and also Jennifer Nansabuga McCumbie. Oh, yeah. So she is um, she's so supportive and just so generous with time and with information. So I think those would be the people that I would say have been really influential a brilliant novelist as well jennifer isn't she yes and, um, and also your amazing kids like thank you yeah. <laughs> and laura did, did you want to answer that too? yeah i mean i have so many and they're just rattling around in my head and i could probably talk all day about my various writing friends but i think 
the big one for me is from the beginning, my parents kind of trusted my slightly questionable career decisions. I was meant to go to university and study accountancy. And then I got there and was really bored within a month because <laughs> accountancy. And then- You actually started the course. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. But yeah, I, I went to Newcastle University actually. And then I just texted my mum one day and said, oh, I've dropped out. I'm gonna go and do journalism like next year at Northumbria. Okay. And then when I arrived home one year um, and said, mum, I know what I'm gonna do with my life. I'm gonna be a best-selling novelist. She was like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> sure you are. But they have <laughs> never discouraged me from doing anything that I've wanted to do. So they're the main the main thing, really. Um, I mean, it looks obvious to anyone, really, that you made the right decision, though, doesn't it? And yeah. the hard one to make at the time. It's easy to say that in hindsight. And yeah. it makes total sense when you look at where I've ended up. It's like, obviously, journalism was the right path, but it was a very questionable decision at the time. Mm. But I think it's such a you know a, an important thing that you've both said there about the faith that other people put in your work, that that does for people who are in your day-to-day life that are there for you all the time, that, that understand what you want to do. Even if your parents were maybe a little bit worried, Laura, for a while, they still stuck with you because they knew that it was what you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. To have that in a professional capacity as well is really powerful. And that's where organizations like New Writing North come in. Because I think so with the project that I won the Northern Writers Award for, mm. its future is still a bit uncertain, but just having had that faith put in it by someone like you guys, that in itself is, extremely powerful just having someone say actually this is really a worthwhile thing and I think you should keep working on it is great and sometimes it gives you that extra push to get where you need to go yeah I mean do you feel that Yvonne like just you know an outside organization or or individual or someone just saying that yeah we think you're good and we think you should keep going I definitely do I think that's really important so for me um, even writing it as part of a PhD think about it your readers are quite academic Well, Jen does both, so she's a professional writer and she's an academic. But a lot of times I would go to things and they were other academics. And I know the whole thing about like what you study, it's it's kind of interesting, or it has been an interesting experience. You do not have to do a PhD to write, of course. Um, Doing it, for me, created networks and it gave me access to people and information and it gave me time. So it was, for me, I think the, the right path to be on. But it was always curious, the people who thought they could question that decision, And so they would be like, oh, what are you going to do with your creative writing PhD? And I'm like, well, one thing I'm not going to do is ask you to support my kids. So like, (laughs) really, you're off the hook, whoever you are. So it was... (laughs) It was just really weird. And even being among other academics and whatever they were studying, and they would be saying, so what are you going to, like, a creative writing PhD? Uh Um, Aren't we all creative writers? And I'm like, no. I had someone ask me, I was talking about this the other day. They came, and it was at a a meeting, and he was saying, so what's the difference between you and Mark Twain? And I was like, really? Absolutely nothing. You've caught me there. (laughs) I said, no, I'm alive. And, um, And I thought, like, of all the things that we could have that, you know, were different and together, I'm quite proud to be alive. But... I do think having outside organizations stepping away from academia and having readers who enjoy writing for different reasons, that was really, I think, influential for me to be Mm. able to say, like, actually, it's not just that it's this creative writing project and it's not just my thesis. This is a book because I do I did want it to be read off campus. I wanted it to be read in communities. I want it to be in libraries and in bookstores. And so having an organization of readers who value reading and have that professional judgment as well to come through and say, like, actually, yeah, this is, you know, a real book. It's not just an academic project. I think for me, that was really useful. How we judge things as well. We we have an anonymous judging process, so we don't know whose writing we're looking at at the time. Their name isn't on the manuscript. And we also have a fairly nuanced system of sifting as well. So your writing goes through different stages of being read before it gets to the, the final judging phase. So anyone who, like you two, who wins an award has been read by more than one person through that process too, kind of hopefully ironing out as much subjectivity as you can iron out, I think, in that, in that process and making it as fair and as even and open as it can possibly be. It is meaningful, I think, when you go through a process like that. You know, it's um, highly competitive as well. Last year we had well over a 1,000 applications, which, which is a lot for us to practically to process and yeah. um, a lot for you to kind of gradually kind of float through and reach the, the top of too so it's it is a really significant achievement i think i think so. smashed it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well done you've been listening to a podcast from new writing north and there's still time to submit as the 2019 northern writers awards are open for submission until midnight on the 7th of february for more information and to enter please visit northernwritersawards.com
New writing. New, no. writing, new, no. writing, no. new writing. You're listening to a podcast new by writing, New Writing North. No.